Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia, and welcome to My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace and John Pigeon here, and we're very excited for another Q&A episode today. We love hearing from you about what you want to learn more of and also scenarios that you have that you want to thrash out, don't we, John? We do indeed. So let's get straight into it. Let's do it. Hypothetically speaking, Emily, if you owned your house outright for $2 million, how would you use the equity to elevate your portfolio and how would you break down any future purchases? So this person has said, right, salary 150K, one other investment property at the moment. Goal is to have enough passive income to not work probably within 15 years. Wow. So it's quite aggressive, quite aggressive, but owning your own home outright is a massive feat first and foremost, regardless of what the the value of the property is. Um, But there's some opportunity there, but there's a lot of things that we need to take into account here, isn't there? Definitely, and particularly the distribution of that equity and how to best utilise it. I mean, my first immediate thought is seek advice from a financial planner. Like that's my first immediate thought and one that understands the value of property because I think sometimes there can be a bias towards products of investing rather than property itself. But I also think it's really, you know, how do you maximise that equity without uh, having parameters, sorry, with having parameters in place that if we hit a massive interest rate rise or you have hardships that you weren't expecting to face, that we do have enough buffer to support where we end up putting that equity. I think that's probably my, that's where my first thought is. How do we safeguard this? Yeah, absolutely. And it obviously doesn't need to be all property. Um, mm. We are a property podcast, but we realise that diversification is important. And and the financial planner aspect is for, for things outside of property, generally they don't yes. specialise or have real experience in property. So their domain is outside of that, whether that be super uh, or shares or managed funds, etc. Okay. So if we're just talking property for the moment, mm-hmm. um, I think the key thing is high level, we, we own our own home outright. So we, we might have a few dollars remaining on the loan, so we keep the loan open or we've basically got the title back and we've got no loan at all. So we need to work out which one of those it is. Mm-hmm. Um, if, we, if we have our title in our top drawer at home, then w- we need to go and find a lender that's going to extract the equity out of our own home to, to go forward and, and buy property with. So that whole cash flow versus capital growth thing, because if again, if we stay high level, the great Aussie dream is to own your own home outright. Mm. Now, that's not enough wealth for people to, to go and retire because they have to sell that 
asset to realize it, don't they? So we want to be building super, we want to be building a share portfolio, we want to be building a property portfolio or other things that are going to grow over time so that when we want to retire in 15 years in this example, we've got the ability to keep our own home um, but just keep leveraging off it, which is the, the idea of this question. Now, 150K, reasonable salary. We don't know dependents. We don't know other debts in their life. We're presuming there's none, uh, but we've got one other property. So I think we need to focus on, well, is it cash flow or capital growth? Which one do we want out of this? Now, you might look at it and say, well, the share portfolio is going to give me cash flow. And the property portfolio is going to give me a leveraging and, and equity and, and wealth. Um, so if that was the case, would we would we go and take out an enough for the first purchase or would we go and take out enough for maybe the next two or three purchases? Um, so the mortgage broker is really key in this first conversation, isn't, isn't aren't they? So we need to find out... Uh, how our servicing is going to look with one, two, three properties. Do we need a 4% yield? Do we need a 3% yield? Do we need to focus on what that third property looks like before we go and purchase the first? Definitely. And I also think something to factor in here is um, how long do you feel you might be in your current property, right? Because if that's where everything's being held, this equity uh, and, you know, potentially owning it outright, I I think outside of where else do we invest, it's are we happy where we are right now um, or are we prepared to leverage what we have right now to get to where we want to be and then reassess the situation because, you know, people often upsize and they get to a certain point and they downsize as well. Uh, but I, I think fundamentally, as you mentioned, John, having a broker who can help uh, structure the release of that equity and um, working out how many properties it goes across if it is property and what the yields need to be and what the the rates, uh, interest rates are, is vital in making this a reality for you. Yeah. And it's a good point about that own home. Like in 15 years time, do we still see ourselves living in that property? And and just to pre-frame, it doesn't mean that this person's paid down $2 million worth of debt. They might have bought this home for 500000 30 years ago and now it's worth $2 million and, and they've only paid down the five hundred. So just for, for listeners thinking, wow, they've, uh, they, they own $2 million outright, well, yeah, a lot of that might have been the property growth. Um, so we might do an example on this. Um, if we were to say have a vision over the next 15 years to go and buy three properties or in five years, three properties, the, the years are irrelevant. And we wanted to spend maybe five to 600K. If we say 600K, we're going to, that's going to get us a house with some land somewhere around the country, maybe not in the top capital cities. But um, if we then say, right, 20% as a deposit, we're going to need 120 plus stamps. Let's call it 150 round figures. Mm-hmm. So we pull out the 150 and we want to know that because we're using equity, that the the cash flow of that property that we're about to purchase is going to cover the majority of those loans, both the equity deposit and the remaining uh, 450-odd as, uh, as, a, as a loan amount to purchase the property. Um, and I think staying cash flow neutral or even slightly positive 
is a critical part in this because we're looking to retire in 15 years. So we don't want to go into retirement having to service or, or um, cough, uh, cough our funds into these properties where, um, where we're not earning an income. Definitely. It's a massive consideration in the whole piece of the puzzle. And uh, maybe if it was at a different stage of life, negative gearing might be an approach that someone takes and maybe the cash flow isn't so important. But knowing that piece of information of the retirement, it's pretty evident that that needs to be at least neutral. Yeah. So I'm putting you on the spot here. If <laughs> you were in this position, mm-hmm. how, how are you going to structure this? How... how how high are you going to go? You're going to go and buy five properties if you could. If the banks say, yeah, go for it, are you going to buy two in the next 12 months and then sit on them for the next 15 years? What, what are we doing? I think for me personally, I wouldn't go for quantity of property. Um, I'd probably look to make – because I guess the higher price point you buy into, right, The generally the growth of that is going to be – pretty amazing. You know, if, uh, the more money you have to put into one investment, generally speaking, the better in my eyes. So for me, I'd probably only divide it between two properties. Um, I diversify by putting them in different states, maybe not even in the, the state that I currently own my own home in. Uh, and I think the hardest part of a higher purchase price, let's call it 900000 or something. Um, generally speaking, what I find the higher purchase price it is, harder to get the right yield. So we're going to need to be very selective in where we actually park that and looking at the vacancy rates and the the demand of that. Um, You know, maybe with the recent lifestyle changes of people, maybe that is a coastal town of some sort. But ultimately, I would be wanting to make a smart investment that's not super risky, uh, and probably buy two properties worth around 900000 900 um, each? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I think so, that accounts for enough of stamps and whatever. Yeah. So you're banking on the fact that, okay, in 15 years' time, the 900K property is going to be worth one and a half, two million million, $2 and we sell down on both of those properties and, and that's our cash for retirement over and above what we've got in super and, and shares. Is that, that fair to say? Yeah, and also I think what plays into that, um, from experience is the more properties you have, the more problems you have in terms of property managers and maintenance. And so if you can limit the, it to two properties of that value, then uh, hopefully your outgoings overall is going to be less. Yeah. Okay. So one thing we need to factor in, and if you're listening in at 22 years of age, I don't want to scare you, but you may have kids and mm. you may want to leave some wealth to those kids or or, um, mm-hmm. or at least give them a head start in life. So do you think we need to be thinking about that as well uh, and not just thinking about ourselves and how we're going to comfortably retire in 15 years but, yeah, what's the next generation going to inherit and, and how's that going to play out? That's a very good point. Not something I thought of in my decision-making. <laughs> 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 Maybe naive to, to thinking about, you know, having my kid brain on. Yes. Um, But also what popped into my head when you just said that was I know some families I've even spoken to people, you know, sort of my age where their mum and dad are sort of leaving a property each 
to the kids. Like that's their, you know, that's their sort of parting gift um, to their children. So it's also the quantity of properties does come into play if that's the the strategy. Um, But yeah, maybe that's something that we'd need to to factor in, whether that's in the form of property and and growth or if it is in a share portfolio that – we can cash in at some point and be able to put towards um, kids. I'm not sure of the right answer, you know, necessarily, mm. but um, certainly a consideration. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think it's a wise decision to to say, right, um, little Jimmy, this house is yours. Uh, Rosie, this house is yours. Like yeah. <laughs> it, it's more of maybe a, a cash outlet, as you said, to say here's yes. 50 or here's 100 or whatever. And yes. and being privileged enough and grateful enough to be able to do that for your kids is, is outstanding because totally. it may not have happened to us on the way through. So we're, yeah, we're in, a, in an awesome position financially. And uh, I think... Yeah, we've in, in sort of, I suppose, rounding this out, we need to understand how much do we actually need to live on in 15 years, right? Is yeah. it is it 20 grand a year? We're going to do some part-time work. Is it 100 grand a year? And, and then that has to marry up with what our portfolio planning um, is, is going to be and what we've got outside of property as well. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a, an, an interesting one to get the juices flowing and it's, mm. and, and especially for someone that, maybe hasn't started investing yet, it's it's something to not get frightened or scared by but just excited by to the point where over the next 20, 30, 40 years, you hopefully are in a position like this where you have got choices like that. But one thing I would say to this is uh, when, when I think about the four pillars for financial wealth, I, I, I think about paying down our own home at some stage in our life increasing our cash uh, buffers in our life, uh, increasing our assets and potentially uh, reducing our tax. Now, Mm -hmm. the third and fourth correlate with each other. But I I think a lot of Australians, and if I've learned something through the, the generation ahead of me, it's taking action before we pay down or in conjunction with paying down our own home instead of yes. just waiting. Now I own my home outright. Now let's go and invest, right? I've, I've potentially wasted 10, 15, 20 years um, yeah. of, of asset growth. Yeah, definitely. That's a good lesson to learn from the generation above. Good takeaway. Key takeaway. <laughs> right. Love it. Uh, so... I've got plenty of questions. In fact, I've got a whole list of questions here uh, to go through from our community. If this is your first time listening to a Q&A episode and you want your question featured on the next Q&A episode, just put it in the My Millennial Money Facebook page and put hashtag property on it or just tag John and I and we will answer it. Um, FYI. So first cap off the rank in the list I have in front of me is from Lillian Newen and Lillian asks, is it worth keeping an investment property if interest rates increase? Lillian, poke the bear here. (laughs) Yeah, this is an interesting one, but it's a very topical one at the moment because there is the ever-looming threat of interest rates rising. And was it it must have been a worked example that you did, John. I was just recalling in my brain the exercise of you were saying six interest rate rises. Remember we broke down an example yes. together and maybe that's worthwhile that was, uh, touching on. Yeah, that was in the Market Outlook episode, that's I believe, right. um, yes. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, so we do need to factor in interest rate rises at any stage, mm-hmm. uh, whether 
Like we've been obviously through an all-time low of interest rates, no doubt about that. So there's a good uh, understanding that it, they're heading north at some stage. So I think we're always factoring that in. Now, the question of is it worth keeping an investment property if rates rise? Well, there's a financial thing and a mindset thing, isn't there? Like mm. the financial thing is physically, can I afford to hold this property if interest rates go up 1%? Yeah. Now, I was having this conversation with someone the other day. The last thing that we want to give up in our life is the roof over our head. Mm-hmm. The first thing that goes in times where we're, we're struggling cash flow-wise is our assets because we've got no real tie to them. And I can see oh, if I sell this property, um, I can extract 100K in, in profit or whatever the number may be that clears me out of, um, out of debt or out of, out of stress. Now, I think we need to go back and think, well, what is our cash flow management like in our life to begin with? Have I got mm-hmm. my emergency buffers? Have I got my foundations in place? Do I know how much I'm saving? Now, we may be in a position where we didn't take that into account on the way in when first buying this investment property and therefore we're already struggling with the repayments and, and a further interest rate rise will cripple me. If that's the case, now and we've looked at our finances and we physically can't save any more money or we can't cut back on any other spending and we're, we're, we're foot to the floor in that space, then you may have to sell. But mm. generally, I think we need to be saying to ourselves, if we hold this property for the next 10 years, generally speaking, it's going to have a pretty good outcome uh, while I'm sleeping. Right, if it's worth six hundred thousand, there's a good chance it might be eight hundred, nine hundred, or even doubled in that time. So, is it worth keeping? Wholeheartedly, it's worth keeping. Definitely, I think the interesting thing in reading the question in my mind was interest rate rises wouldn't, and this is my personal opinion, wouldn't be the trigger for me to go, oh, is now the right time? To, now should I sell my investment property? That's not the trigger. The trigger would be, okay, I'm reviewing my portfolio after holding it for 10 years. Is it the 10-year mark? What's the market looking like for similar properties that I have? And is it a good time to sell? Is the market showing the right indicators that now would be a great time to sell? That would be the first trigger before an interest rate rise would trigger me to think, should I be getting out of this? Unless, of course strapped for cash, need to release something and get rid of it. I think one thing to keep in mind is if the mindset of the majority is interest rate rises are here, so therefore I need to sell, let's just take that as a generalization, what you will find most likely the market's going to be flooded with properties that people are selling out of and you actually may find it harder to sell because people have more choice Mm. or you may actually sell it under market value just to get it sold. Yeah, so just to be point. really aware of that because um, this a herd mentality in that situation and potentially an uneducated view of interest rate rises could actually see a flood of stock on the market, becomes a buyer's market and therefore you sort of uh, reluctantly sell your property for the price that it goes for. Yeah, and, and I haven't been guilty of this, but I've been guilty of selling a property when looking back on it, I probably shouldn't have. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a it was a quick cash grab to to go and do something else with when I when I shouldn't have. So yeah. definitely, we've um, 
we're going to face these these question marks along the way as investors and and that's what keeps it exciting is well what what's my next move what's my next play i think high level there's three reasons as to why you would sell and you want to sell when you want to not when you have to um mm-hmm. the first one is I want to get rid of all my bad debt in my life, pay my own home outright, right? So I want to mm-hmm. remove that debt so I can increase my lifestyle. Uh, number two is it's not performing for me, so I'm going to put it into or put that money into a better performing asset somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. And, and understanding the historics of what that property has done. And then the third one is almost similar to the first one, but it's, well, I'm reaching retirement and I'm going to cash out and and go and um, go and travel the world. So definitely, yeah. I think anything short of those three, we need to be looking at it, saying, well, yeah, are these little short term interruptions to our portfolio really a game changer? Like it's like someone yeah. trashing my house. Someone's um, kicked the door in and 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 uh, yeah, ruined the walls and there's going to be thousands of dollars spent, I'm just going to sell the property, right? Mm. I'm, I'm throwing the toys out of the tub and away I go. So yeah, yeah think long term. Lillian definitely. would be our thinking there. Most definitely. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with some more of your questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, John, we've got a great question here from David Ganane, and David asks, navigating the complexity and costs associated with selling a property. It's actually been a while since we've spoken about selling property. I know we had an agent on maybe last season talking about, you know, selling your property and what it looks like, but I find this a really interesting question because um, if you've bought a property at some point, you're probably going to sell it. So, it's, it's definitely worth knowing about. And I don't know about you, but my general philosophy around selling a property is not going for the agent that has the cheapest commission. And I saw a quote yesterday from Tom Panos, who those real estate people will know. Tom Panos is a real estate coach in the industry. And he said, if the agent's discounting their fee, are they also discounting your home? By saying, you know, if they're going to take a lower fee and they're happy to sell it, you know, take themselves cheaper, will they actually sell your home for the best possible price? So, 
There's a lot of different things to consider in selling your property. Number one would obviously be selecting the appropriate agent to do so. Um, But I also think there is a lot of unknown around potentially selling your property with very minimal costs in the form of selling it off market. Keen to hear your thoughts around the value of selling off market, John, because in, in Victoria, they exist a lot, very heavily. And I think it's a great way for a vendor to sell in certain circumstances. But what are your views around selling off market? Yeah, well, usually you and I are on the other side of the fence, aren't we? Mm. Trying to buy those properties that are off market and we want a discount. We want to buy uh, (laughs) for less than what we think it's worth on the open market. So one thing I I wouldn't mind selling off market as long as I think I'm receiving overs for what the property is worth. And having, but with both of us in the industry, we probably know what a lot of property is worth. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't out there. So, mm. the, the risk of, of selling off market is is being guided by the, the real estate agent or, or, or someone in their corner to say, well, yeah, I think you should accept this. And then looking back on it, realizing, hang on, I could have sold it for much more on the open market. So, yeah, my, my actual thought is probably let the market decide what it's worth unless yes. it's got something of, uh, of a smell about it as in it's not going to be an attractive property to, to list on the market because it's tenanted or it's, yeah, there's a whole heap of rubbish. I don't know, something's amiss. And I think the only other exception to that rule I would add is um, if you don't actually have the funds to take it to market because I think what a lot of people don't realise is – to be, to be a vendor and take your property to market, there are upfront costs that you will need to be able to uh, finance, whether that's you know cash in the bank that you put towards it or there are financing solutions for this specific thing as well. But to advertise on realestate.com and domain, to have a board at the front, have the brochures, potentially have an auctioneering fee, um, you know, generally speaking around Australia, it can be anywhere from eight to $15,000 to take a property to market. Maybe you style it and maybe you do a paint to make it feel fresh. So there is an investment, I would say, in taking a property to market to get the best result. And for some people, they can't be bothered with that and so therefore they're happy to take an off-market sale price that's, you know, around about what they would get on market. Um, For others, they want the market to tell them what it's worth and they will put the effort in to actually go through a campaign. Just be mindful that um, your agent can definitely drive you one way or another based on, you know, you're obviously quite influenced by a sales agent that's telling you what the best way is to sell your property and so... I just keep that in mind because some are super geared towards let's take everything to market and they believe that's the best way. Others are super heavy on off market and then there's some that are in between. So that agent selection is really important. Yeah, absolutely it is. I've got a friend who's actually selling at the moment and they had an auction scheduled and in an area where auctions take it or leave it, it's not an auction capital like a Melbourne. So they actually pulled it from auction because there wasn't wasn't enough interest and have now gone to private treaty. And I think it's going to be a better outcome because it just, um, that, that's what the market demands at the time. So yeah, feel free to pivot um, because if you haven't got that thought process, the agent might just in, um, encourage you to continue through that auction and realise that one person turns up and it's a flop and now it's got a mm. bit of a smell 
email about it when when you're trying to sell. But yeah, so you've mentioned the marketing costs. We've got to factor those in. You've mentioned maybe the fix it up costs uh, to get it right and styled, ready for 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 selling, depending on the the type of property. And then obviously the agents commission. How much are they are charging you to for the privilege of selling the property on your behalf? And and in areas uh, that uh, may be more regional, your percentage might be higher mm. as a relative to um, costs in the city. So I, I would say that 2% might be about standard as a selling cost, anywhere from 2 to 3%, including yeah. GST. Um, but in the regionals, you might be experiencing the percentage a bit higher, but the actual dollar amount is, um, is all relative. What, what have you been seeing? Yeah, definitely. Although I must say um, in very competitive areas in, you know, real estate where people really like there's six agencies in one patch and everyone's fighting for for business, I think that 2%'s gone out the window for a lot of them and um, some of them are offering fixed and some are offering a certain percentage to a dollar figure of the sale price and then a bonus, basically a bonus structure after a certain figure. So for example, they might say, look, it's 1.5% of a million dollars if we get a million for you, but for every $10,000 extra after a million, we take a certain percentage extra of that as sure. part of our commission. So they're they're incentivized to get a higher sale price for the vendor and how that's structured and how those conversations go um, needs to be fair and reasonable. But um, yeah, there's different ways of modeling commission structures so that agents can do their best job but also so they can get the business. Yeah, totally. Okay, so if we look high level on a, a million dollar sale yep. uh, and we worked on that 2%, that's yep. what's that, 20 grand? 20 grand, yeah. Plus yep. five grand to maybe market the property ballpark depending on where we're putting it, maybe just say five to ten as a, as a um, depending on the how prestige the property is, you might want to go to town with that marketing um, and then maybe – five to 10 on fixing it up, just getting yeah, it styled if you think uh, you need that, et cetera. So yeah, yeah that, that's 30, 30, 30 to 40 grand you'd, you'd factor in, uh, which is what, 4% of uh, of your total value of the property, which I think is is pretty good. Like yeah. don't balk at the fact that you have to pay five grand in marketing to tell people that your property's for sale. Totally. At the end of the day, if people don't need properties for sale, it's not going to sell. <laughs> That's right, yeah, and uh, yeah, don't don't skimp on something like if if you've paid five hundred grand for something and it's now worth a million dollars, and and you're not going to pay forty grand to sell it, like rocks in your head. Yeah, agreed. Hopefully that has helped you, uh, David, in understanding the complexities of the costs in selling. Uh, now a question here from Stuart McAndrew, which I think is a great question and doesn't come up uh, enough and it's asking around doing due diligence on a buyer's agent, uh, how to know if they're not trying to sell you a bad investment, which is interesting, the wording here, trying not to sell you a bad investment because um, a a buyer's agent shouldn't be selling you anything. Uh, They should be putting options in front of you that um, are suitable for what you're looking for. This is something I'm very passionate about and I'm sure you are too, John. But I think the biggest thing to understand in engaging a buyer's agent is I am certainly of the view that the only payment a buyer's agent should receive is from their client who is the buyer. Anything else beyond that, I guess, to be fully independent and to act in their best interests, um, they really need to be ensuring that that is 
ultimately their client and who they're servicing. So there are a couple of tick box items that you could check uh, when you're speaking to a buyer's agent or a buyer's advocate in, um, you know, selecting one. I think, uh, and we probably know what questions we get asked, right, in terms of when people are talking to us. Um, I think there's a couple of things. Number one would be how many properties, you know, have you bought for other people? I think that's a great question to be asking. Uh, And it doesn't mean they have to have bought hundreds of properties, but you want some sort of evidence that they're buying properties that uh, look like something that you would purchase and they have market knowledge where you're looking to buy. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. What would be another common question you get asked when people are interviewing for, you know, to have a a buyer's advocate on board? Yeah, good one. So sometimes... We, we get asked, um, are we registered or with these professionals or this group, et cetera, right? Yep. And, and some we are, some we aren't. Like there's probably five groups in New South Wales that you could be a member of. Um, right. and, and I think, yeah, you need to understand. Um, I think the key is, is looking at uh, what they can do for you and making sure that you're on the same page with the buyer's agent. They understand what you need and you understand their business model and and you've got good relations. You've got a good gut feel about that person or that company, I think, is, mm. is the number one. But um, like being a member of Real Estate Institute uh, of New South Wales or um, Victoria or whoever that may be, um, I think that's one that, that I want to be a part of. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, that, that's, I think a key one with, with all of that is the market and my price point, the dollars I've got, can you help me in these particular markets? Because we, I suppose, um, we're in different areas of buyer's agent space. You're looking more owner occupier, I'm looking investor. So a lot of investors come to us saying, we don't know our strategy, can you help me? And can you help me with locations? So we're actually designing the strategy with them or or for them in a lot of cases, Um, whereas with the owner occupier, you're then you're saying to them, where do you want to live? What budget have you got? And they've already got a lot of their strategy in place, haven't they? So it's Definitely. two different scenarios, owner-occupier versus investor. Oh, I totally agree with that. And I think um, particularly that becomes more focused in on the owner-occupier spaces. Like, are you buying in the zone that I want to be in? You know, do you have clients that have bought in that area? Whereas investment, because it can be so transient in the markets that you shift and change into across Australia, you might just be entering a new market that you haven't bought heaps in yet, but you've identified it as one that's a possibility. Um, The other question we often get asked is how many off-market properties are we getting access to? Um, And that comes down to agent relationships. So, Yes, off-market properties are an indicator. I wouldn't say they're the be-all and end-all in having a great buyer's agent on board. I think what's really important is understanding how can that buyer's agent leverage their agent contacts and their agent relationships to get me the best result possible. I think that's super important, whether that's in the form of an on or off-market property. um, You're, as part of engaging and investing in a buyer's agent, you are fast tracking the relationships that they may have um, that you might not be able to build with an agent uh, as sort of a general public member. 
Whereas, you know, you and I do spend a lot of time speaking to agents and repeat dealings with agents as well. And they trust in the way that we operate. And therefore, we tend to do good business with them, which is um, something that can only come with time in the game, I guess. Yeah, totally. It's rapport building, isn't it? And yeah. and just knowing what you think something's worth in a particular area. Um, yeah. and, and, and especially in these times where there's so much uncertainty around what things are worth because the markets are moving at quite a rate. So yeah. when you think oh, I've got 500 to spend and I've seen this listed at 480, I think that's within my budget, but really we think it's only worth 400, then you, you don't want to be paying 80 grand too much for something and then realise that two, three years later that mm-hmm. we've paid too much just purely because that's all that, that's what I had to spend. Yeah. Definitely. So I think if you're selecting a buyer's agent, whether it to be for your own home or for an investment, I think probably the bottom line is it needs to be someone that you definitely have a good feeling about and that you gel with because you will be speaking to them quite often in the process. And it is a large purchase you're about to make. So the trust factor in ensuring that person's doing the right thing for you is is vital. Um, and the way you can, I guess, cross-reference that would be from their past purchases, um, reviews of past clients, and just general track record of how they operate in the industry to make sure they're doing everything the right way. Mm, absolutely. Good question. Cool, cool. Um, I think that is all we have time for for today, but um, we do love a good Q&A session. Uh, We've been doing them a bit more regularly, so always feel free to put your questions across and we will answer them in the best way possible, but hope you've taken some valuable insight from today's episode. Absolutely. And uh, before we go, word on the street is you've got some – high quality online course to buy your own home to live in. Is that, is that, is that the word? word? on the street. Uh, <laughs> yes. It sits under the My Millennial Money Education um, umbrella and it is specifically for first home buyers because long-time listeners will know, like think Emily, think first home buyers, think John, think investment. That's you know, we're both on different avenues of the advocacy world. Um, but yes, the course is... Australia-wide for anyone who basically has a pre-approval in hand and is like, okay, what do I do now? Uh, And it walks you through every step all the way through until settlement. Awesome. Yeah. Would it be worth them purchasing before they get the pre-approval so that they can understand fast forward the steps? Yeah. I think as soon as they're sort of thinking about buying a a home really and they're starting to engage a mortgage broker, for sure, that would be beneficial to them, definitely. Awesome. That will be in the show notes. That sounds good. Um, And as always, John, your course more geared towards the investment space because if you are an investment listener, John's course would definitely be the, don't do my course, (laughs) go and do John's course. That's uh, certainly, uh, you kindly gave me access to that and I get weekly reminders of how far I am Uh, through the course. (laughs) What what are you, 12% through now? 12%. (laughs) I I skimmed it. (laughs) But there'll be a link in the show notes as well to John's course for those who are more on the investor side of the fence as opposed to first home buyers. Cool. All right. Always a pleasure. Likewise, we will speak with you next week. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.